I want to thank our congregation for your prayers as we spent uh, seven wonderful days in Shanghai. And as you've seen in the video, uh, many places and many people met. Four places that uh, were of great impact in my life were when we went to the homeless shelter, the orphanage, uh, the livelihood center for those with special needs, and uh, visiting the elderly. We spent between two to four hours in each of these places, and after each occasion, I left physically and emotionally exhausted. In the evenings, I would ask myself the question, could I minister in these places every day? Could I serve in one of these centers every day of my life for the rest of my life? Because we met men and women who packed up their bags from halfway across the world to dedicate their lives to the people of Shanghai. And for the foreseeable future, they will spend the rest of their lives ministering to the people God has called them to minister to. Would you be able to do the very same thing? You know, as I thought to myself, there are times where I get tired of doing things. Can I decide to take a day off, maybe a week off? You know, I'm just tired of kids. They cry too much. You know, these elderly, they don't seem to respond well. And so I decided to take a week off. But then when I think about the implications of that, who then would feed the homeless for the day they so need it, who would feed the little babies who need special attention, who would give the elderly a chance to experience life rather than being homebound, who would give these special needs people a job. The deep impression I had as I walked away was the impression of the deep, deep commitment that these men and women who volunteered their life to this ministry had. Commitment. Unfortunately, in this generation, young and old, we have a problem with commitment. We think we are committed, but we are not. In this fast-paced, digital, connected world, we have very little patience for working through our problems. We bail, we run. When the first sign of trouble hits, we, we get angry, we give up when things don't go our way. In fact, this lack of commitment has translated itself into our relationships. Some of our, uh, some of our most deeply held relationships. We are unwilling, we are unable to be committed to someone, people we love, specifically in the marriage relationship. This morning, we conclude our series entitled, This Thing Called Love, as we have been looking into the book of Song of Solomon. And as we conclude this series, we want to talk about commitments. Commitments in a God-honoring relationship, and how we can maintain commitments, whether to our friends, to our spouses, to our family. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 8, as we exposit verses 5 to 14. The Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 5 to 14. As you know, the Song of Solomon is God's guidebook to love and romance, intimacy, marriage, and the married life. As you're turning to this passage of Psalm chapter 8, excuse me, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, Remember that in these past few weeks, we have been peering into the relationship between Solomon and his now wife. We began as they were initially attracted to one another, 
when we talked about the boundaries that were important to set up in a dating life. We took, talked about the marriage and the celebrations uh, that should be a part of all of our relationships. We talked about the marriage evening. We talked about the fights that this couple had and how they resolved their disagreements. Biblical conflict resolution. And so now, how will this book end? It ends by giving us a glimpse of how they would remain committed to each other in love for the rest of their life. What are these biblical principles that encourage us and cultivate in us commitment in relationships in which we call love? Let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, again, look with me at Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We begin in verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? We begin this section by the friends asking a question. The friends of the couple. Who is coming from the wilderness? Notice that this is a rhetorical question, meaning that it, there is no answer explicitly given because the answer is obvious. It is the couple that is coming out of the wilderness. Why are they pictured as such? Well, to the readers of their cultural context, the people of Israel would perhaps be reminded of their wilderness wanderings, where they wandered in the wilderness, where they experienced trials and tribulations, where they were refined as a people, before they entered into the promised land. This is a couple that has gone through the trials of relationships. This is a couple that has gone through the conflicts and the difficult situations of a married life, as we've talked about in previous weeks. And now, how are they pictured? Verse 5, leaning upon her beloved. The woman is leaning upon her man. They are in an embrace. They are pictured as one. Here was Solomon and the Shulamite, as we talked about two weeks ago. The word Shulamite is literally the feminine form of Solomon. Solomon, Solomoness, they are together. They are pictured as one. They are inseparable. And they are coming out of the trials of their marriage to commit to faithful commitment. Solomon then speaks the second part of verse 5. Look with me. I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Here is a picture of the beginning of the relationship under the apple tree. The apple tree in the ancient world is a symbol of love and romance. And what Solomon is saying is that there has been love and romance since the beginning. In fact... He says in verse 5, There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. I have loved you. There has been love and romance since the beginning, since the day of your birth. Now that seems kind of creepy. Here's a man who was in love with a woman from the day of her birth. But you got to understand this is Hebrew poetry. Solomon is essentially saying, ever since you were born, we were meant to be in love. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound romantic? Solomon is saying, it's, it's destiny. We were meant to be, you were born to be in love with me. Can you imagine coming up to a woman and saying, you were born to be in love with me? 
Hopefully she'll take it the right way. You were made just for me. Now, now what you have here is a picture of oneness. O-N-E-N-E-S-S. The idea of being just for me and no other. This was not only a God-blessed relationship, this was a God-authored, God-ordained relationship. What Solomon is saying in the end of verse 5 is, it is in God's perfect plan, in God's perfect plan, He has put us together. From verse 5, we see our first principle for how to cultivate commitment in a relationship. To be committed in a relationship, number one, if you're taking notes, you must have a perspective of oneness. A perspective of oneness. It is the idea that when you are married, you are one with each other. The Bible says the two become one. You are now stuck together. You are now fused together. You can no longer be pulled apart. Because as two, you can be pulled apart. But as one, how can you destroy one? And here's the idea. Here's the implication. Since you can't be pulled apart, since you are stuck together, then you better work things out. Out of the wilderness comes a couple who is one. You see, love sticks you together. Attraction puts you together. But commitment makes sure you remain stuck together. Did you get that? Love sticks you together. But commitment makes sure you remain stuck together. That is the biblical idea of oneness. And we see this even in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Through the cross, we are one in Him. We are one in Christ. And the Bible says, we will never, He will never leave us nor forsake us. Romans chapter 8 says, we can never outrun His love. That's why the implication is, we believe that once saved, always saved. When God has joined himself with us, he lives in our hearts. The biblical concept of oneness takes over. We cannot be separated. When Julius Caesar landed on the shores of Britannia or Britain with his Roman legions, he was able to succeed in conquering the land that so many others before him had failed to do. When he sailed over the, what is now known as the English Channel and left the mainland of Europe... He took a bold step. He lined up all of his Roman legions, all of the soldiers, over the cliffs of Dover. And if you're familiar with that part of the world, uh, you can oversee, overlook into uh, the English Channel and to the mainland. And down in the waters from the cliffs of Dover, there were all the ships that had taken the Roman legions from the mainland to Britannia. With the command from Caesar, to their surprise and amazement, Every one of those ships were burned into the sea. Why did Julius Caesar do this? He understood that to conquer Britannia, he needed the full commitment of his soldiers. There was now no turning back. There is now no out. Deal with it. And that's the implication of the perspective of oneness. When we realize that there is no option B... There is no option two. There is no way out. Once you are put together as one, I call that commitment, then you work through your problems. And we get a glimpse of the heart of God in the book of Malachi. When God says, I hate divorce. In our 
context in this country. No annulments, separation. Yes, because of our sinful nature, God in the scriptures allows for divorce in certain cases. But the heart of God is that once the two are together as one, they are not to be separated. And so we are committed. The perspective of oneness no longer to be taken apart. The second principle can be found in verses 6 and 7. Look with me. Here the woman speaks, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. What's this woman asking Solomon to do figuratively? She is requesting that her husband put a figurative seal on her. If you don't know what a seal is, like a stamp. In the biblical context, a seal is a mark of ownership. She wants her husband to own her. Now, can you imagine preaching that message in the 21st century? You don't own me. I'm no one's possession. But here, in the biblical sense, she wants her husband to own her. What does she want? She wants her husband to have the notion that as his most prized possession, his thoughts, his actions are changed. I own you as a prized possession, and therefore my attitude will be to guard you. My action will be to protect you. And we see that. Seal me upon your heart, a change in thoughts, a seal upon your arm, a change in action. What this woman wanted, what she's always wanted throughout this book, is security. And so if you own me, a seal of your ownership, you no longer flirt with other women. You are no longer open to being pursued by others from a woman's perspective. That's why there's no place for pornography in the life of a Christian, much less for a husband and wife. Pornography is lust and lusting after a man or a woman other than your husband or wife. Bible calls it adultery. It is fornication. Leviticus chapter 18 speaks of adultery as looking onto the nakedness of another man's wife. A woman's body is meant only for the eyes of her husband. A man's body is meant only for the eyes of his wife's eyes. And that has deep implications for what you wear. She says in verse 6, jealousy as cruel as the grave. She is saying, I'm jealous for you, but in the desire for ownership, I want you to be jealous of me. Now you say, well, hang on, pastor. Isn't jealousy a sin? Well, there is a righteous jealousy. The Bible even tells us that God is jealous for us. He's jealous for us. And if you are rightfully jealous of someone with whom you are in a relationship with, it will cultivate in you a heart of commitment. Imagine that. God is jealous for his people. That's why we believe that Christians cannot be demon-possessed. God does not share his people with the evil one. God doesn't share because he is rightfully jealous Because he owns us. In the same way, 
in our relationships with our wives and husbands, we must be rightfully jealous. Because when we are so, we will protect each other from temptation. We will protect each other from being unfaithful by doing things like spending time with each other. We're going to be possessive of our relationship. No, she is mine. I do not share my spouse with someone else. And here from verse 6, you see the second principle for cultivating a relationship of loving commitment. Number two, a view of a rightfully jealous owner. Imagine that. Number two, a view of a rightfully jealous owner. Now, what are the implications of that? Look at verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. A jealous owner is one that is protective. But in that protection, you see the perseverance of love. It is a love that lasts. And that's what verse 7 is saying. It doesn't matter if there are floods or high water. That love, that jealous, rightfully jealous type of love cannot be quenched. You see, a commitment centered on a rightfully jealous owner sees that the relationship is priceless. Priceless. It cannot be bought. Love cannot be bought. Unfortunately, there was a movie uh, a few decades ago. I'm not telling you to watch it. I haven't seen it. Called Indecent Proposal. In that movie, the premise was that a very wealthy businessman offered for a million dollars to sleep with another man's wife. How sad that that proposition would even be entertained in a world such as ours. Because unfortunately, the sanctity of marriage has been destroyed. And so all of our loves is up for sale. But the Bible says very clearly in verse 7, if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Love that is true love, committed love, is priceless. It cannot be bought. And if it cannot be bought, it must be given. And because you fight and you protect priceless things, you will drop everything to protect it. You will fight for your marriages. You will drop everything to focus on your families and your relationship. And I've had to be reminded many times by my wife that my ministry in life is first to the family. And that means her. And in my view, she is priceless. As a rightfully jealous owner, I will have to fight for her. No job is worth losing your wife or your husband. No career is worth losing your spouse, regardless of, regardless of what the world says to you. No fleeing or affair is worth destroying your marriage. No hobby, no special interest, no pursuit is worth damaging your relationship with your spouse. You see, guarding your relationship is no joking matter. It is the goal of the evil one to destroy marriages. It's no laughing matter. If it's something that is priceless, 
you don't mess around with it. I remember the story of a preacher. He was at a preacher's convention. And uh, he was listening to a particular speaker. And the speaker got up and started his message with this sentence. I spent the best years of my life in the arms of a woman, not my wife. The congregation gasped at this revelation. But then the speaker said the punchline. She was my mother. Well, amused, this young speaker said, you know, I'll try that with my congregation. Get a bit of shock and awe and uh, get their attention. But this uh, young preacher had a problem with memory. So he got back home to his church. And the Sunday back, he begins his sermon. I have something to say. I spent the best years of my life in the arms of a woman, not my wife. The congregation gasped. And the preacher paused because he forgot the punchline. After a few nervous moments, the only thing he could say was, and I can't remember who she was. She made it worse. He made it worse. <laughs> I share that with you because I've heard many couples Joke about the relationship. Joke about what could have been if they had married their old flames, their old boyfriends or their old girlfriends. I'm shocked sometimes at how flippantly we talk about relationships and relationships with other men and women that are not our spouses. If you're a rightfully jealous owner, guarding your relationship is no joking matter. It's priceless. You don't mess around with it. You don't jeopardize it. Are you a rightfully generous owner of your spouse? If not, you should be. It would certainly help you to remain committed in that relationship. In verse 8 to 12, there is a flashback. Yes, there are flashbacks in the Bible. There's a flashback in verse 8 to 12 of how the woman grew up And when she first met Solomon, look with me, verse 8 and verse 9. Here are the brothers of the woman speaking. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. We get a glimpse into the early life of this woman. She has older brothers. They are very protective of her. In fact, they protect her until the day of her marriage. We see in verse 9, where they say, if she is a wall, meaning if she is a a woman, a young woman of good character, uh, of good judgment, if she is a woman of integrity and of purity, then she will be given freedom. But if she is a door, meaning she is open to all, if she is reckless in her life, if she sleeps around, If she is careless, then we will put restrictions upon her. We will enclose her with boards of cedar. We will limit her going out. And this was good for her. Now you can say, wow, these are really overbearing brothers. I would never let my brother tell me what to do. Uh, From an ancient cultural perspective, 
the men of the household, whether the father or the brothers, would protect the women, especially a younger sister, protect her at all costs, protect her integrity, her purity. She speaks in verse 10. I am a wall and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. This young girl in verse 10 is no longer a woman as is descriptively spoken of in verse 10. I'm a woman now. And I am a wall. I'm a woman of integrity. I'm a woman of good character. And now I'm ready to find Mr. Right, the right person. And then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Brothers, thank you. You have guarded and protected my purity and my character. But I'm a woman of integrity and character. And now in this story, I am ready to meet the right person. Where does she find him? Verses 11 and 12. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He leased the vineyards to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. This woman and Solomon meet in a vineyard. We get a little bit more detail here in verses 11 and 12. It is a vineyard that Solomon owns, but he leases it to tenants and leases it to her brothers. It was a fruitful field. We get the details that there was enough grapes that it fetched a thousand shekels, about 25 pounds of silver for the landowner, and about 200 shekels or five pounds of silver as wages for each tenant. Now, you may remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter one, when we began this book, we found out that this woman was working out in the field under the direction of her brothers. We were not told that this field is owned by Solomon. And so we find out that Solomon meets her in his field and falls in love with her. Now, as you read these verses, you say, who cares? I don't need to know that this is a thousand shekel land, 200 shekels for each of the tenants. Now, put everything together. This is an amazing story. Here is a king who owns a land in a modern-day context, and he was going to collect his share of the fruits. He goes to collect. There in the fields is a young, beautiful maiden. She's a commoner. She has no aspirations of ever becoming royalty. She's under the protection, uh, you can call it, the abuse of her brothers, working hard in the fields, And it just so happened, fate brings them together, destiny, serendipity, whatever you want to call it. He happens to look down. She happens to look up. Their eyes meet. And he falls in love with her. This is pretty much every Disney movie. You have it right here, just in Hebrew poetry. This is an amazing love story. King marries commoner. Commoner becomes queen. That's the story there. 
Who doesn't love a story like this? It must have sounded romantic back in those days. What the couple was doing was they were taking a walk down memory lane. The couple was reminding themselves of how they first met. They even got the details right. How much was given to the landowner and to the tenants. Boy, they had this nailed down. Probably because they repeated the story over and over and over again. So as not to lose love's intensity. And that's why it's important to go on dates, to, to remind each other of how you met and the circumstances that God has led you out of your marriage relationship. I've encouraged all marriage couples to date throughout the marriage, set out specific times to spend time together, and don't let other things become a higher priority. Now you say to me, Pastor, this, this dating thing, this is a, a Western concept. My parents are happily married. They never went on a date. They just sat in the business. They sat in the store. That's all they did. Nothing romantic. Sat there from 7 in the morning till 10 at night. They have a loving relationship. Think about what you just said. They were together from 7 in the morning to 10 in the evening. It's a long time together. That's the idea of dating. Forcing very busy couples to spend time together. Like what Tommy Nelson says. Set aside, setting aside a night a week to be with your spouse sends a strong signal to your spouse, to your children, and to anyone else who may be observing your marriage that you value your spouse as a person and you value your relationship. It's a strong sign of love, honor, and cherish. You see, for those couples with children, it's important that you get away. You go on a date. You stare into each other's eyes. You listen to each other's. You, you imagine what it was when your husband still had hair. You look at each other and you, you, you remember when they were 40 pounds lighter. It's important to do that. For most of you, especially with kids, going on a date is a reason for you to get away from your kids. But it's important that you do that. Because you are showing your children that daddy loves mommy. And that mommy loves daddy. And they love each other more than they love the children. Which is important for them to know. And when you are out on a date together, the whole world can see that you are one. You are together. It's a testimony. Not only to your spouse, not only to your family, your children, but to the community at large. When you spend time together, you are one. Your love is strong. And as they took a walk down memory lane, they remembered how much they indeed loved each other and they concluded this book with each Speaking of verse, verse 13, Solomon speaks. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Solomon is saying, I can't wait 
to hear your voice again. I have found very few husbands who tell me, you know, Pastor, I can't wait to get home so that I can hear my wife's nagging voice again. Oh, I just can't wait. I, wait, I can't wait till 5 o'clock that I can rush home and hear, you, hear her tell me. <laughs> Solomon is saying, not in those words, I can't wait to get home because I can't wait to hear her voice. Sweet sound of her voice. This is years into their married life. Verse 14. This is the woman speaking. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She is saying to him, hurry home. I I long for you. I long for you. Can't wait to see you. I know many women who dread their husbands coming back home. Because when their husbands come home, they begin to demand everything. Where's the newspaper? Where's the food? Where's the snack? When a husband says, I'm going to be away for a while, the wife says, oh, I'm going to miss you. But deep down inside, she's saying, hooray, I have time to myself She says of Solomon, hurry home. Here we see the third principle for biblical commitment. In biblical commitment, there is, number three, a heart that yearns for each other. A heart that yearns, longs for each other. You see, commitment in marriage is not drudgery. It's not an emotional prison cell. Oh, pastor, if you only knew... Wife thinks to herself, I can't wait till my husband dies. I'm stuck in this relationship. A woman says, how many more years do I have to put up with him? He also thinks the same thing. And although those are harsh words, that's unfortunately the reality of a lot of couples I talk to. They're tired. They are not happy in the relationship. They can't wait to get out. There is no joy. There is no desire to see each other. There is no desire to hear each other's voice. There is no heart that yearns to be with each other. And that is why when that happens, commitment is very tenuous. Unless you have a heart that yearns for each other, unless you have a passion for something, you won't desire to do it every day. May that yearning and that longing be a part of your relationship, both now and forever. For you can say of your spouse, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of marriage, I can't wait to get home to see her. I can't wait till he comes home so that I can see him. As we close this book, we see that God's view of marriage and Love in a relationship is one of commitment. Commitment. Sticking it out until death do us part. And in biblical commitment, there is the perspective of oneness. There is a view of a rightfully jealous owner. And there is a heart that yearns to be together. My friends, relationships are hard. 
But if you have those three elements and with the help of God, you will remain committed all of your life. Some of you are sitting here thinking, this does not apply to me. I'm still single. But commitment is something we all must learn. It is a practice, a spiritual discipline that must pervade our life. Because there is one deep relationship that all of us have. And that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the problem is, we don't have commitment in that relationship. Here is God, who before time has planned, has predestined, that He would be one with us through the cross. He will indwell our hearts through Jesus Christ. He desires for us to be in Him. What about you? In that relationship you have with Jesus, do you have oneness with Christ? Or do you often have a plan B or an option to so that you can go party with the mistress of this world when you are supposed to be one with Christ? Because we don't understand commitment, We often don't have that commitment with Jesus. Do we have a perspective of oneness in our relationship with Him? Because when you place your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He comes into your heart. You are in Christ. You are to be committed to Him. Did you know that He jealously guards his relationship with you. He's a jealous God. He protects you. He will not allow anything to happen to you apart from His will. He is a righteously jealous owner. He has purchased us with His shed blood. We are His property. We live our lives for Him. But what about you? What about me? Do I jealously guard that relationship? Do I own that relationship? Because most of us don't. Do we carve out Sunday morning and say, you know what, this is God's time. Nothing, basketball, competitions, nothing will take away from this thing I call priceless, my relationship with Jesus. Have you carved out into your every day, 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, in prayer, in the study of God's Word, and you say, this is of the highest priority. The house literally can burn down. But this time with God is so precious because my relationship with Him is priceless. Most of us aren't that way. For most of us, our walk with Jesus, when something comes, It's the first to go. Don't talk to me about commitment to Jesus Christ if you are not willing to guard it like a righteous, jealous owner. You know, the heart of the Lord is a heart that desires and longs to be with us. He desires to walk in intimate fellowship with us. Remember the parable of the prodigal son, he's the father. He's his father that, 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 that stands out every day with arms stretched open waiting for the prodigal son to return. He longs, he yearns 
his wayward children come back. Do we have the same longing if we say we are committed to Jesus Christ? Do we have the same longing to walk in such intimate fellowship with him that we can say we are committed to you? Or are we wishy-washy about one foot in the world and one foot in Christ? See, commitment is a simple word to say with profound implications for how you live your life. If you say you are committed to Jesus Christ, it should transform the way you live. I ended with this story told by Max Hickerson. Talks about a wonderful incident in the life of a man by the name of Les Paul. If you're a musician, a guitarist, uh, you may have heard of this guitar phenomenon by the name of Les Paul. Paul is well known throughout uh, the music world. He invented the solid body electric guitar. In 1948, Paul's passion for the guitar almost came to a tragic end, the end of his music career. While he was driving on a bridge in Oklahoma, his car skidded off into a river and his arm was shattered. The doctor told Les Paul they could, they could save his arm, but he would never play the guitar again. Because to reconstruct his arm, they would have to freeze it. They would have to set it. It, it could no longer move. Paul was devastated. He would never play the guitar again. But a day before the operation, Paul had an idea. He asked the surgeon, could you do me a favor? When you set my arm, when you freeze my arm, could you set it at a slightly less than 90 degree angle? Could, could, you, could, could you set my arm in a 90 degree angle, an L shape, so that I can still cradle my guitar? The doctor said, are you sure? Once it's done, your arm can no longer move. Yes, please do that. And so for the rest of his life, as that bone was set, Les Paul could not throw. He could not reach or raise his right arm. It, it didn't matter to him. He could play the guitar. Maybe a lot of us need to ask the Lord to remold us, to recast us, so that we can set our lives into a loving, committed relationship with Him. That we choose not in the flexibility that we have that this life affords. But we ask the Lord, Lord, set my life, angle my life, align my life so that it is set in love, so that it is fully committed to you. Because after that, I can't move. That's what a lot of us need, to set our lives so that it can no longer move wayward because we are wholeheartedly committed to him. It is my prayer for our congregation that when we talk about men and women who are committed to Jesus Christ, it is a commitment that is not superficial or paying lip service to that word. It is a committed life whose lives are set in love for the one who died in our place. And we love because he first loved us. Let's pray.
Lord, it is good to be reminded through your word of what is commitment. A word that is often taken lightly for granted. And no wonder our relationships are in shambles and especially our walk with you. I pray this morning that in the renewal of our minds through your word, we will recommit ourselves to living our lives wholly for you. Not turning to the left or to the right, but set in our ways, set in the direction of the one who loves us so. I pray for the marriages in our congregation, the husbands and the wives, many of whom are going through difficulties, finding it very difficult to be, remain committed for whatever reasons. I pray that you would rekindle their love. I pray, Lord, that they would remain as you have exemplified what committed, loving relationships should be. Give them wisdom and discernment. Give them patience. Give them the words to speak love upon one another. Pray that our church would rise up and be called a church that is committed to the work of Jesus. And may that ring out true in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.